Well, welcome to the third week in a series that we've been doing that's been called Gaining by Losing. And uh, if you are a guest with us this morning, kind of like DJ had mentioned earlier, thanks so much for being here. We actually count it an an absolute honor that you would spend your Sunday morning uh, with us here. And just to kind of catch you up to speed with what we've been talking about in this series, what we've been discussing is we've been talking about this paradoxical principle um, that the Bible gives us, this gaining by losing principle. And and what the Bible tells us is that if we truly want to gain Uh, abundance as God defines it, if we really want to gain the blessing as God defines the blessed life, that the way that we do that is not through hoarding and it's not through selfish ambition, but paradoxically, it's actually through deliberately losing. Uh, That when we lose ourselves for the sake of God and we lose ourselves for the sake of others, that it's through that that we actually truly gain. And so we've been talking in the series about that paradoxical principle of gaining by losing. Now, of course, what's prompted this entire series for us Uh, you might remember, is our decision to move to Saturday evening services. And so uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to be adding two Saturday evening services, just two weeks from now, if you're a guest. We're really excited about that. We're going to be starting a brand new series that uh, is a great opportunity to invite friends, coworkers, and those things too. would encourage you to do that. And so it's exciting. It's a lot of work. Be praying for us. We're we're pumped about that. But that's kind of what's prompted this series. Uh, What we've been saying in this series, though, is that this is not simply an announcement that we're moving to Saturday services, but rather this is an opportunity for us to explain kind of the deeper why. Uh, Why is it that we do things like go to Saturday evening services or like planting campuses or a myriad of other things that we do? Why is it that we do those things? So we thought we'd take the opportunity to give the deeper explanation. And in addition to that, what we said is we want this to be an invitation, an invitation to anyone to get connected to the movement of what's happening Um, here at Grace Church. And so that's kind of what the conversation has been. Uh, The first week that we were together, you may remember if you were here, uh, we said one of the reasons that we do things like Saturday night services and we make moves like that is because of what we believe the Bible teaches about blessing. And if you were with us, you might remember we, we said that blessing in the Bible is two things and nothing less. And in the Bible, what we find is that blessing is both a divine gift and is also a divine responsibility. Uh, The Bible says in Genesis chapter 12, that when you experience blessing, uh, you are blessed to be a blessing. And so the first week we were together, we talked about that. We said that we are blessed to bless. Anytime we find ourselves in a situation where we are experiencing blessing from God, we must always ask the question, how can we in turn then become a blessing to those around us? We are blessed to bless others. And so we said, man, as a campus, as a church, we have been blessed. And we talked about that the first week together. We described some of the growth that we've experienced and some of the incredible things we've seen in our ministry. And we said, it's awesome that we're experiencing blessing, but we have to ask the next question, which is how can we leverage that blessing to become a blessing to the community around us? And so part of that it helps inform uh, going to Saturday evening services. Last week, we looked at another reason. We said another reason that we do things like Saturday services is because of what we believe about the church. And so if you're with us, you might remember we said, man, the Bible says a lot about the church. And what the Bible teaches us is that the church is not just some man-made social organization. It's not just a volunteer institution. We said, no, 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 much more than that. The church is a divinely commissioned organism, the body of Christ that's been entrusted with the message and the mission of Jesus in the community that we're in. And so because of that, what we said last week was we said, for those of us who follow Jesus, and I know, of course, not everyone in this room follows Jesus, but for those of us who do, we said, we believe we've been rescued by Christ. But we've been rescued, according to the Bible, to rescue. Uh, that God didn't just save us, but he also called us to be part of the greatest rescue mission as the universe has ever seen. And that, of course, 
is to the church. So we talked about that last week. Now this week what I want to do is I want to talk about a third reason, kind of a third reason why do we do things like deliberately choose to, to lose ourselves and add services or to plan campuses, why do we do that? And, and this is going to sound kind of strange, but one of the reasons we do this, we're going to look at today, is because of what we believe about generosity. Okay? It's because of what we believe the Bible teaches about generosity. And specifically, what we're going to talk about today is, is what the Bible teaches about financial generosity as it relates to our money, our wealth, and our possessions. And so let me just put this out here right now. Today, this morning, we are going to be talking about money. All right? I'm just watching your reaction real quick. Good. I feel like it's necessary for me to say that from the very beginning that we're going to be talking about money because you know as well as I do, this is a taboo topic to bring up in the church. And, and man, pastors talking about money, those guys are always doing that, and I understand that. This is a conversation that is oftentimes met with resistance. In fact, my guess is the moment I said today we're going to be talking about money, for some of you, you're like, oh, man, maybe there's some angst. Maybe you're like, I wish I wasn't here this weekend. I wish there's a way to get out of it. And, and, and that tends to be the response. And by the way, that has always been the response. Ever since the church has started, this conversation has been one that has been oftentimes met with resistance and is sometimes considered a taboo conversation. All the way back to the time of Jesus, uh, that has been the case. So the question is, okay, well, if this is a taboo topic to talk about in the church, if this is one that, that is kind of uncomfortable and sometimes can cause uh, some resistance, then why even talk about it? Why have an awkward conversation if you don't need to? And, and, and listen, I want you to think about it like this. Okay, so one of the things that is true about me that I, I really hope is not true about you, but I'm guessing for some of you it is, is I'm, I'm the kind of person that I hate going to the doctor. I hate it. I always have. And, and like I said, I, I, I hope you're not like that because it's a good thing to go to the doctor. If you're a doctor, I apologize. You probably hate people like me because I'm the guy that waits to the last minute till like my, my limbs are falling off before I come see you. And so I just hate going to the doctor. I've been thinking about this some because I don't think it's a good thing, but I've been thinking about it. I'm like, why is it that I don't like going to the doctor? And I think I've boiled it down to two things. The, the one thing is I, I hate being under examination. The feeling of being vulnerable, and any doctor you go to, there is some level of vulnerability. I, can't, I don't like that feeling. I don't like being in that position. And the other thing I don't like is, and this is probably the bigger one, quite honestly, is quite honestly, I don't like going to the doctor because I know that there are things that I don't want to change. I don't want to change, and I know if I go to the doctor, he or she is going to tell me there's something that you need to change. You know, you're not, something is unhealthy, and so you go to the dentist, you need to floss more, and, you know, if you go to the other doctor, you're going to have to do whatever, and, and I just don't, and so my thought is, if I just don't go to the doctor, then I won't know what I need to change, and ignorance is bliss, right? And, and I know it's a really, really, it's really faulty logic, but a lot of times, that's honestly why I don't, I don't want to change. I don't want to think about it. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. Okay, case to that point. A couple years ago, uh, probably about two and a half years ago, I was feeling kind of off, just wasn't feeling great. And there were some weird kind of strange symptoms that were starting to kind of creep up. So one of the things that was happening was I, I was watching my blood pressure and it was slowly starting to go up over time. I was like, man, my blood pressure is, is starting to get kind of high, like higher than normal high. Another thing that started happening, my wife told me, she's like, you know, you are snoring a lot which I don't, I wasn't typically traditionally a person that snored. And she's like, you are, you know, you are just like snoring like crazy. You're keeping me up. It's out of control. And I wasn't sleeping great. And on top of that, another thing that was happening was I was experiencing a really high level of anxiety. 
Now, I know all of us kind of have different, you know, build-ups and make-ups, but one of the things that's true about me is I've always been a person that's been inclined towards kind of being an anxious person. But this was like at an all-time high. My anxiety level was super high. And so I was like, man, I'm not feeling good. So I went to Jess, my, you know, my wife, and I was like, man, I'm not feeling great. You know, I got this thing going on. My blood pressure is high, and I got this anxiety thing. And she's like, go see the doctor. And I was like, no, I hate the doctor. Okay. You know, I know exactly. They all say the same thing. I'm going to go to the doctor, and he's going to say, you need to diet and exercise. That's what they always say. You've got to diet and exercise. And I'm like, I'm not going to go to the doctor. And she's like, well, just go to the doctor. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I hate the doctor. And she's like, well, then quit whining to me about it. <laughs> it's like, well, no sympathy there. So. so anyway, I thought about it some more, and things weren't getting better. And so I thought, well, I probably better stay alive, so I'm going to go to the doctor. So I went to the doctor, and I bit the bullet, and I went, of course, went to him. He ex- did the examination and all that kind of stuff. I didn't, wasn't didn't like it or anything. So I said, I'm sitting down with the doctor, and the doctor said, okay, so, you know, what, if, what are some of the things that you've been encountering? And I was like, well, so one thing is my blood pressure has been kind of spiking. It's been getting higher. And he was like, you know, we noticed that when we, when we did some of your tests. And, and he said, is your family, you know, do you have a family history that way? And I said, I do. A lot of people in my family have high blood pressure. He said, okay, well, so we need to keep an eye on it. He said, but uh, let me ask you one question. He said, do you regularly diet and exercise? I was like, shut up, you know, it's like, no, I don't, you know, and he's like, okay, he's like, well, there's things you can do, he said, but honestly, if you diet and exercise, it's probably going to be the best thing for it, he said, he said, anything else going on, I said, yeah, I said, my wife said I've been snoring a lot recently, and that's not real typical of me, and he's like, well, there's some sleep tests we can do, and, and we can, I can refer you to some doctors, he said, but again, um, he said, you know, we had you on the scale a little while ago, and it looks like you're kind of drifting towards the upper end of where you need to be. And so diet and exercise might be a good thing. I was like, you call me fat, doc, you know? And he's like, no, I'm just saying, you know, you got to probably watch that, diet and exercise. And he's like, anything else? And I'm like, my anxiety level's been really high. And he goes, well, are you, is there anything that would be stressing you out right now? And I'm like, well, we just planted a church. My wife is pregnant and we just moved. So no, I think everything's fine, you know? And, uh, and he's like, well, that's, he goes, that's a lot of stress and stuff. He said, but, you know, diet and exercise probably really help you in those areas. And so I was like, thanks. And so I left, and I came home, and Jess was like, how was the doctor? And I was like, stupid. <laughs> She's like, why? I'm like, you these guys, they say the same. He's like, you need to diet and exercise. You need to diet and exercise. That's all I ever said. That's all he said the whole time. Well, here's the crazy thing, right? I actually started to put in practice what he said. I'm like, okay, I'm going to start doing these things. I know that this is what every doctor says. And guess what happened? As a result of doing that, my blood pressure went back to normal. I stopped snoring, and my my anxiety level greatly decreased as a result of that. And and, and he was right. He was right. Now, here's here's my point. This is is all I tell you the story to to make this point. It is really easy for us when, when something is said frequently and often, and, and it's difficult to hear. It is easy to mock something and make it cliche. It's easy, right? It's easy for me. The doctor, all he ever says is diet and exercise. They're all saying the same thing, those doctors. It's easy for me to do that. But just because I mock it and just because it's cliche doesn't make it any less important. It's an integral part to health. Anyone can tell you that, right? Now, listen, in the same way, uh, just because you take something uh, like, like, like this topic that we're about to talk about of money in the church— just because it's become a cliche thing doesn't make it any less important. A pastor, a pastor's talking about money, big surprise. Every pastor I've ever known talks about money. Their old church we went to, that pastor talked about money. Church before that pastor talked about money. 
I just like to go somewhere where the pastor doesn't talk about money. Well, listen, here's the thing. Just because it's cliche, and, and I'm not, I am not for a second trying to dismiss the fact that there has been great financial irresponsibility in some churches. That is a true thing, and so I'm not trying to minimize that. However, just because it's a cliche and just because it's something that's repeated often doesn't make it any less important. There is a reason. There is a reason this topic is brought up often in the church. There is a reason that Jesus Christ brought this topic up, commentators estimate, more than heaven and hell combined. And if we're following that guy, we're following Jesus, and he talked about this this frequently, that means there's something really important here. And so, and so we must talk about it. To avoid this topic, I believe, would not only be, uh, would only lack scriptural integrity, I think it would be to your spiritual disadvantage. I think it would be to your spiritual health disadvantage in the same way that me neglecting the doctor is to my own disadvantage as well. Okay, so here, here's what I want to do today. Today, I want to have a conversation about the biblical perspective of money, okay? So money, wealth, and possessions. I'm going to try to use this giant whiteboard to help me just to give us a visual here. So hopefully you can see this. And if you can't, um, that's okay. It's relatively simple. So I think you'll be able to follow along. But I want to talk about the biblical perspective of money. Now, the reason I think this is an important conversation is first and foremost, because like I said, it's biblical. Uh, Jesus talked about this often. And the second reason why I think this is so important is because uh, there is a lot of um, error and a lot of extremes um, in this topic in the church. And so I think it's important to bring some balance. So let me tell you how I hope to approach this conversation today, and then we'll kind of work through it. So what I want to do is I don't want to give you one principle, one point about money today uh, and about wealth and about finances, because the Bible doesn't give us one point. The Bible actually gives us several principles that work together, and, 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 and they, there's a tension that exists between them, and we have to navigate that. So, so what I want to give you instead of one point is what I call, I want to give you the money matrix, okay, the, the money matrix. And I can't say matrix without thinking about that movie. I just can't. It's, I always think of Lawrence Fishburne, red pill, blue pill. That's the picture. And parent of child 660. That's what I think about every time I think about the matrix, right? So uh, the money matrix. What, here's what I mean by matrix, okay? So I, what I mean is we're not just going to look at one singular point. I want to look at six principles that, that, that are all equally true, they are all equally true uh, in the Bible about money, and, there is, and you have to hold all six of these in reverent tension, okay? So, so to take one of these at the expense of the others is going to bring you into very unhealthy places. And so you have to have all six of these working together, and we have to process through those for those of us who follow Jesus, okay? So that's what we're going to be looking at together. Now, to do this, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles to 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapters 8 and 9, if you would turn your Bibles there. That's where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time today, is in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We, we are going to look at other passages of the Bible as we navigate through this conversation, but I'll just put those up on the PowerPoint. By and large, we're going to be in these two chapters. Now, the reason we're looking at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is because these are the premier passages on the topic of uh, financial stewardship and responsibility in the Bible. There's a lot throughout the Bible that talks about money. These are two solid chapters that are just committed to the topic of biblical generosity. Uh, so we're going to kind of see how this plays out, okay? So 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, and then we'll go into this matrix. Now, before we do that, why don't we just have a word of prayer, ask God to help us as, uh, as we enter in this conversation. Well, God, as we, as we uh, open up your word and as we uh, prepare to hear from you, I pray, Jesus, that you would give us wisdom, 
I pray, God, that, uh, that you would work in our hearts. Allow us to, to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for us this morning. And uh, Father, we know this is an important topic, and we know that uh, this is something that you talked a lot about, and we, we understand that there's something that you want for us in this. And so, Father, I pray that you would just lead us to that today. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you would just do me a favor, I'm going to ask you if you, would, if you would pray for me. Pray that God might just give me wisdom in this conversation, and pray that I'd be useful to you. And so if you just do that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, God, we love you, and we just say thanks for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so matrix. Here's the principles that we're going to, six principles that we have to hold in equal tension as it relates to our money. Here's, here's the first one, okay? And, uh, and the, the top one that we're going to look at is this. Is that financial generosity is motivated by the gospel. Okay, that biblically speaking, financial generosity is motivated by the gospel. So over here, I'm just going to write the word gospel. So here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the gospel is the true motivation for those of us who follow Jesus for biblical generosity, okay? One of the things I love so much about 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is that the Apostle Paul doesn't just give us the correct motive for biblical stewardship and biblical generosity, which is the gospel, but he also gives us false motives, wrong motives for biblical generosity. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Again, if you've got your Bibles, glance down with me at chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. Here's what Paul says. He says, but since he's writing to the Corinthian church, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we've kindled for you, see to it also that you excel in the grace of giving. Because just pause there for a second. Apostle Paul says, you guys are doing awesome. He says, you're growing in your faith, you're growing in your knowledge, you're growing in your love. He says, see to it that you also grow and excel in giving, in generosity, in financial generosity. But then I want you to notice what he says in verse 8. He says, but I am not commanding you. I'm not commanding you to be generous. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, this is really interesting because, like I said, the Apostle Paul doesn't just give us the correct motive for generosity. He also gives us false motives. And here he says this. He says, listen, I, I want you to, to give, but I'm not commanding you. This is not a commandment. In other words, I don't want you to give as a response to a commandment, a law that has been put on you. So, so the word commandment is actually pretty interesting. In the Greek, the word originally means decreed by authority or decreed by law. It means to oppose onto somebody. And this is actually really fascinating that the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to be generous, but I'm not, it's not a commandment. It's very interesting because some of you know, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that in the Old Testament, God did command his people to give. Uh, the Israelites were commanded to give a tithe. A tithe was 10% of their income that God commanded his people to give. In addition to that, God commanded his people to give offerings. Uh, some commentators estimate that the Israelite would give anywhere between 23 and 27% of their income to the work of God because they were commanded to do so. They were commanded. It was a divine decree that God gave to his people. But some of you know in the Old Testament, the Bible says that that was an era in which we were under the law. And now since Jesus Christ has come, he has fulfilled the law, and we are no longer under the law. We are now under grace. And so we are not under commandment. And so the Apostle Paul comes in here, and he says, I want you to give. He says, but I am not commanding you. And so, so the motivation here is not one that is out of divine obligation, okay? 
This is not just out of, uh, I have been commanded to do this, so, so I have to do this. In addition to that, if you look at, at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, just glance over one page in, in verse 7, notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Now watch this, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. So again, he gives us two false motives. He says, I want you to give. He says, decide in your heart. God loves a cheerful giver, not reluctantly. Not under compulsion. The word reluctantly there literally means sorrowfully. It means grievously. In other words, Paul says, if when you give, you're secretly having a funeral service for your money, it's like, don't give that way. If, if you're giving reluctantly, he says, if you give under compulsion, in other words, if you just guilt-tripped into giving, don't give. It's a bad, it doesn't last, and it's a bad motivation. So the Apostle Paul says, don't give because it's a commandment. Don't give out of reluctance. Don't give under compulsion. Okay, so how do we give, Paul? How do we give? He says, true generosity is motivated by the gospel. Let me show you what he, what he says. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 8. Go back a chapter. Look at verse 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Now, what did Paul just do there? This is, this is huge. What the Apostle Paul said is, I want you to be generous, not under compulsion, not reluctantly, not because you're commanded to. Why? Because you know something. What do you know? He says, because you know that God, Christ, who is rich, he made himself poor so that you could become rich. Now, what is that? What is he talking about? Now, that, in a nutshell, is the gospel. If you're not familiar with what the gospel is, here's, here's the story of the gospel. It, it is quick in, in a soundbite or two. The gospel is essentially this. It is the story of how you and I as humans are radically impoverished. We are in a radically impoverished situation spiritually and eternally because of our sin. We've been separated from God. Our relationship with God has been disjointed and there is nothing that we can do to earn our way back to God. We are in a radically impoverished situation spiritually and eternally. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, who was rich, he, he, he had all the luxuries of heaven. He sat at the right hand of God. He had a perfect relationship that he made himself poor, that he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he came here in the form of a man. He lived a, a, a perfect life and he died a criminal's death for our sin and for our sake. Why? He made himself poor so that we might become rich so that we might inherit all of the blessing that belongs to him and that we might have a right relationship with God. That's the gospel. And here's what Paul says. He says, once you begin to understand the gospel and it starts to work itself into your heart, once that message begins to digest itself through your soul, he says the natural byproduct is that you're gonna become a more generous person. It is gonna overflow with thankfulness and you're gonna give not out of reluctance, not out of compulsion, not because you're commanded to, but because of God's grace that is working within you. Now, so I know that's kind of an abstract comment, uh, kind of an abstract idea. So let me see if I can put some, some practicality to that. Here's how I think it works. So um, if you've been coming here to this campus for a while, you probably hear me talk about the, my, the school that I went to. I spent four years at a Bible school in Chicago, and I, I absolutely loved my time there. I'm so thankful for my four years at that school. Not only did I get a top-notch education, it was such a good school, but I also had some of the most life-changing experiences at, at when I was there at that school. And I honestly think that when I look back at my time at that Bible school in Chicago, um, I think, honestly, the biggest blessing that I experienced when I was there was that I was able to go through all four years of my education with my tuition covered. 
Um, the way this school is set up is like nothing I've ever seen before. The alumni of that school all give generously and it covers the tuition of all of the students who go there. And, and so the hope is, what, you have to pay room and board, but that's it. But the hope is that when you graduate from this school, that you have zero student loans and you have zero debt so that you can go freely into ministry. And so I went through, all, guys, I went through all four years of this school, got an awesome education. I walked out with zero student loans and with zero debt. And I don't think I realized at the time what an unbelievable gift that was. It allowed me to go quickly into ministry. I was able to get an internship making like peanuts. You know, I, I actually had a closet, I actually had an office that was in a closet that I shared with another person. And I, but I was able to do that because I didn't have, I didn't owe anyone anything. And I was so thankful for that. Now listen, to this day, I still get letters from my school. And, 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 and here's the thing about it, is when I get those letters, it's never a bill. I don't owe them anything. My tuition has been covered. My tuition has been already paid for, right? That's all been taken care of. And so they don't send me a bill. But what they do send me oftentimes is they send me an update. They'll say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what's happening at the school. And they will always ask for a generous gift. Would you be willing to generously invest in um, this next generation and those type of things? And listen, let me just, let me just say that when, whenever my wife and I participate and we give financially to that organization, it is not out of a heart of compulsion. It is not out of a heart of reluctance. I am so thankful for what happened. I used to have people come up to me and they would say, oh, you go to that school in Chicago. That's really awesome. I heard that's tuition free. And I used to always correct people when they would say that. I'd say, no, it's not tuition free. And I don't, I don't even know why this is kind of making me emotional, but it is. But I used to say, man, it's not tuition free. It's tuition paid. Because I, I never wanted to forget that someone paid for me. Someone paid that bill for me. And, and so when I got that letter in the mail, it wasn't law. It was grace. And, and let me just say, if you're a person that has student loans right now and you're still paying on those, my guess is when you get the bill in the mail, when you get the letter, that you don't, you don't, you don't write that check joyfully. Right? You, you, like you're, not, you're probably not like, woohoo, I want to give more than what they asked me to give. No, my guess is you give reluctantly. You give because it's your legal obligation to. There's probably much profanity involved when you're writing that check. It's very different when you're under grace. Very different. See, for my wife and I, when we sit down, I think about all that God has blessed me with at that school, that I was able to walk out the way I did, not owing a penny. And they're saying, would you be willing to give? Not because you have to, just because you can. Can I just tell you what it does is it makes me want to give more. And so I look at Jess and I say, I don't just want to cover my education. I want to cover the education of 10 students in our lifetime because of what God has done for me. It's different. The Apostle Paul says, true generosity is motivated by the gospel. It's not law. It's not compulsion. It's not, it's not because you feel guilted to do so. It's because the gospel is working itself in your heart, okay? Spent a lot of time on that one. I won't spend as much time on the next ones, but let's just go through these. So six principles, generosity matrix. Number one is the gospel motivates financial generosity, motivates biblical generosity. That's what the Bible teaches us, okay? Now, if you take any one of these at exclusion to the others, you're going to be out of balance, and so that's why you need the other one. So here's the next one. The next one might sound almost paradoxically opposite of what I just said, but the Bible teaches this, and it's something we need to hold in reverent tension. And so what is the second one? Here it is. The second one is that God provides richly for our enjoyment, okay? So I'm going to write the word enjoyment up here. God provides richly for our enjoyment. 
So here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus Christ gave everything, made himself poor so that we might become rich. The Bible, and, so, and so that should motivate the way we deal with our money. At the same time, the Bible also says God is our heavenly father and he richly provides everything that we need for our enjoyment. God wants us to enjoy the good gifts that he gives us. Let me show you a passage on this. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, the apostle Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world, let me just pause there for a second, those who are rich in this present world, uh, that would be us, there's the verse, yeah, those who are rich in this present world, that would be you and I. Um, Statistically, you guys know this, it's been shown that if you are sitting in this room at this time in this place, we are in the top one to 3% of the wealthiest people in the history of the world. So command those who are rich in this world, that would be us, right? Not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Here's what's so interesting. The Bible says, hey, command those who are rich, who have a lot of stuff, not to put their hope in their stuff. Don't put your hope in your stuff. Don't put your faith in your stuff. But it says, put your faith in God and enjoy the things that he's given you. You should enjoy that, right? give you a couple other passages. I won't put these on the PowerPoint. I'll just read them. Proverbs says this. In the book of Proverbs, it says that God gives food and wine, or if you're a Baptist, fruit juice, to gladden our hearts. To gladden our hearts. You hear that? God gives food and wine to gladden our hearts, not to nourish our bodies, to gladden our hearts. In other words, it says God loves it when we enjoy things. God made food, God made drink, and he made it in such a way that it tastes good and that it gladdens our hearts because it's not just about nourishment. God loves it when we enjoy the things that he's created. Here's what it says in, in Psalms 35, 27. It says, the Lord delights in the well-being of his servant. God is a good father, and he loves to provide for his kids. And he loves it when his kids enjoy the things that he has provided for them. See, God doesn't want us to walk around with an eternal guilt trip. Always feel, oh, I don't know, I can't enjoy anything because there's other people in the world who don't have this. And so I just, I, I, I can't enjoy anything. God doesn't want, God wants us to enjoy things. He's provided them for our enjoyment. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that if you're in a position where your job allows you and you have the financial resources to take your family on a nice vacation, do it. Enjoy it. Enjoy, your, enjoy the gifts and the, the, the awesome things that God has given you. You can do that. You can enjoy that. It means this. It means that every once in a while, you can enjoy something just for the sake of enjoying it. You go to Starbucks and buy yourself the $27 pumpkin spice latte, right? <laughs> the, the PSL, right? You can, and, and there's no lot. You cannot justify a cup of coffee that costs that much. There's like no rationality to it, but you can enjoy it. You can, you can sip on your PSL, you don't have to feel like, oh my goodness, there's people on the other side of the world that have no PSL, so I'm going to dump mine on the ground, right? God's like, no, 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 you can enjoy it. You can go to a nice restaurant, and you can, you can get a blue cheese crusted filet, and with every single bite that you put in, your taste buds are screaming in worship. Praise God, right? And you can enjoy that because God is the one who made that. Now, you don't put your hope in it. You don't make that the ambition of your life, but you can praise God in all of the things that he's given us for our enjoyment, right? Now, here's the thing. Like I said, if you take any of these principles and you put them in isolation at the expense of the others, it's gonna lead you to some really bad places. So if you take this principle and you forget the, the rest of the five that we're gonna talk about, this could cause you to justify a very indulgent lifestyle, which does not please God. And so we need all of these 
working together. Which brings me to the next one. Now, here's the next one. The Bible tells us that abundance is an opportunity, whoops, I almost tripped, for equality, okay? Abundance is an opportunity for equality. Put this here. And I actually, on this one, I actually might crank my language up a little bit more and say abundance is a responsibility for equality in the Bible. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you glance down at uh, chapter 8 in verse 13, the Apostle Paul says to this church, now, by the way, he's writing to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians were experiencing a lot of affluence. They were a very affluent church. And there were other churches who were strained financially. They did not have the needs to fulfill their ministry, and uh, they were suffering as a result of it. So the Apostle Paul says to them, this is what he says, he says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. So I want there to be equality. At the present time, your plenty, your affluence, will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will eventually supply what you need. The goal is equality, okay? So here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, whenever you have abundance, abundance is an opportunity and it is a responsibility to pursue equality. That's what he says. I love what he says here. He says, listen, the goal isn't that they become relieved and you become hard-pressed, right? He says, the goal isn't that you're rich and they're poor, so now you become poor and they become rich. He's like, that's not the goal, okay? The goal isn't you starve and they have plenty. The goal is everyone has enough. The goal is that, that you are considerate of the needs of others and that when you look at your abundance, that you don't just think me, 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 but you also think, man, God has given me abundance. How can I use this to bring equality to others who are in need? Now, listen, I think this principle makes the most sense when you think about God as our heavenly father. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. If you're a parent in this room, I'm a, I'm a father. I'm, not a, I'm a very imperfect father, but I'm a father. And I think that, that as a parent, this makes a lot of sense because isn't it true that this is something that we crave deeply for our children? I want my kids to have a heart, not a, hoard, a hoarding heart. I want them to have a heart that desires equality, but oftentimes that is not the case with human hearts, is it? I was reminded of that this week. Um, one of the things my family and I is, are doing this fall is we're doing the fall hiking spree. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's the Metro Parks. You walk a certain amount of trails and you earn a walking stick. I don't know why that walking stick is so alluring, but I was like, I want that, you know? And so that walking, so we're like, we're going to do it. That'd be fun. So we as a family started doing that this week, and we were walking at this one park, and I got two boys. I have a seven-year-old. I have a five-year-old, and then we have a little princess. She's eight months, so she can't walk, so we pushed her around in her chariot. And so we had, we had the boys, and we're walking, and we're having a good time, and it was a beautiful day. It's such beautiful weather recently. And my boys were walking past this pond, and they found these snail shells, which to them was like they had found gold, right? My boys are, are total boys all the way through. They love all creatures. They love being outside. They love mud. And this is actually a direct quote from my son Leland the other day. Out of nowhere, I love dirt. You just said that. I love dirt. I'm like, I, yeah, okay. They just love it. So we were walking in the park, and we found there was all these shells, these, these snail shells. And my, my boys were like, these are so awesome. So they each got some. I think they both had about five. And they said, Dad, can we keep these? And I was like, I don't care. Sure, you know. So they're walking, and each of them have five. And at one point, as they're walking, I hear them bickering, which is kind of normal. And so I look back, and I was like, what, what's the problem? I look back, and I see my oldest son, who, by the way, is a master at manipulating his little brother. I mean, he is so good at taking advantage of him. It's scary. 
I look over, my oldest son has nine shells, and my, my youngest has one. And I was like, guys, it's like, what, what is the matter? And my oldest son goes, he won't give me that shell. And I was like, buddy, you have nine. He has one. I said, don't you think that there's something wrong with this picture? And, he, and guess what his response was? Well, I guess I won't have any shells then. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. The goal isn't that you have none and he has them all. The goal is equality. I want there to be equality. I want you to enjoy them and I want him to enjoy them. That's what I want, right? And they're just stupid shells anyway. You're probably going to get a disease. Put those down, right? That's kind of it's like equality. And listen, here's the thing. When I look at my son and, and I see that he has nine shells and, my, and his brother has one, the problem is this. The problem is that he is okay that it does not bother him that he has nine and his brother has one. In fact, it does not bother him that he wants his one shell while he already has nine. You guys, I, I know what's going on. That's a heart issue is what that is. It's a heart issue that's easy to see in children and it's hard to see in ourselves, but it is true of all humanity. The Bible says that it's a disease and the New Testament calls it pleonexia. Pleonexia is the Greek word that's translated sometimes as greed. It literally means the insatiable desire more. I just got to have more. I just got, I need more shells. I have nine. I need 10. I need more square footage. I need more money in the bank account. We got that one model of the car. That was nice for a while. I need the better one. I need the bigger one, right? We, we, we need more, whatever, more, more, the desire for more. And the Bible says it is a disease and Jesus warns against it. And he says, do everything that you can to keep away from pleonexia. And Jesus says that it has a blinding effect. It is so hard to see in the mirror. So the apostle Paul comes in, he says, listen, the goal is equality, not pleonexia. The, the prescription for pleonexia is generosity and equality that others might have. You guys, it, and this is, please hear me, this is not, I'm not trying to guilt trip anyone. It should bother us that we have so much and that there are other people who are fighting to find meals. That, that should do something to our hearts. It should. It should bother us when we see ministries of God's church and when we see churches that are struggling to make ends meet. That should bother us while we're pursuing more and more and more. That should bother us. It should bother us. And again, I'm not saying that under compulsion. It's just the reality. The goal is equality, all right? I love the way that author J.D. Greer put it. I thought he said this so well, so convincingly and convictingly. He said this. He said, Christians who worship God, not money, prefer to live sufficiently and give extravagantly rather than vice versa. See, it's the, it's the opposite. A lot of times, it's, no, we, we live extravagantly and we, we give sufficiently. And he says, no, Christians who love God and Christians who are rocked by the gospel and are pursuing equality usually get this the other way around. Okay, so giving matrix. The gospel is what motivates everything. Um, enjoyment is what God, God wants us to enjoy what he's given us. However, equality is something that we need to pursue after. Here's the next one. The next one I'm going to give you is going to sound almost like a contradiction to what I just said, but it's important and it's biblical. So here's the next one. Money is to be managed with wisdom, okay? So I'm going to write wisdom here. Money is to be managed with wisdom. It's an issue of wisdom, okay? Uh, The Bible is very clear, especially in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is replete with verses that talk about 
money and wisdom, how we need to be wise with our money, how we need to, to practice wise money management. Let me just give you a sampling of some of the verses. I could give you so many, but I'll just give you a few. The book of Proverbs says, the crown of the wise is their wealth. The book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It's a pretty significant wad of cash there. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine, that's what he says. It says, go to the ant, you sluggard. I always love that. It's like, go to the ant, you sluggard. And consider her ways. She saves her bread in the summer and she gathers her food in the harvest. Talking about the importance of saving. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth and he adds no sorrow with it. So the book of Proverbs is real clear. Things like investments, retirement, uh, things like saving, uh, things like debt annihilation, avoiding consumer debt at all cost. Those things are all biblically uh, based uh, money management principles the Bible puts forth. And the Bible says that for those of us who follow Jesus, we should be wise money managers. This, by the way, is why we offer things like the Financial Peace University. The Financial Peace University is, is really designed to help if you don't know anything about investments, if you don't know anything about saving, if you're a bad saver, if, you, if you're in consumer debt up to your eyeballs. Uh, things like uh, Financial Peace University help produce wisdom uh, in this way so that you can grow in, in your ability to be generous. And so the Bible says this is, a, this is an important principle. So the gospel motivates the way that we interact with our generosity. We are to enjoy everything that God has given us. We need to pursue equality with it. We also need to pursue wisdom in money management. That's what the Bible says. Then here's the next one. The next one is this, that money is an opportunity for eternal investment. Okay. Money is an opportunity for eternal investment. So I'm just going to write up here, eternity. So here's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that our money is an opportunity to make an eternal impact, that we can store up for ourselves eternal treasures. Once you notice what the Apostle Paul says in chapter, uh, in chapter 9, verse 6, he says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will reap generously. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now, what's the Apostle Paul referring to there? What he's referring to there is the biblical teaching that you find all throughout Scripture that we can use our material possessions and our wealth, which are temporary in this life, you can use those things and leverage them in such a way that they will produce an eternal investment for you. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where rust and moth and thieves steal and destroy. He says, instead, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven that are eternal and that will last forever, right? This is why Jesus says in the Bible, use your material, use your stuff, use your money. He says, use those things to make friends for yourself, to build relationships with people so that you can have an eternal reward awaiting you in heaven. There is an opportunity for eternal investment. God never condemns our desire to think forward in investments. What he usually condemns is our, is our inability to, 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 to see far enough in the future. We don't think it all the way through into eternity. And he says, listen, you, you need to, to realize that what God has given you, your money, your, your possessions, and your wealth is something that you can leverage for an eternal investment. Um, I think one way to think about it is, is like this. I get some questions sometimes from people, and people will say, hey, um, so, so I hear what you're saying. So how much does God want me to give? 
I think a lot of times we like a nice, clean, and fast answer. Just tell me how much. Is it 10%? Is that what you're saying? Is it 9, 9%, 5%, 20%? Just tell me what the number is. I just want to know the number. And here's the crazy thing. is Biblically speaking, as it relates to all of these considerations, there is no number. There is no magic percentage that God wants you to give. He says, decide in your heart. It's between you and God, and it's based on these different principles. But I do think, I think a lot of times, this, this is actually a pretty good answer. When someone asks, how, how generous should I be? How generous should I be? I honestly think the best answer is, how much reward do you want in heaven? How generous should I be? Well, how much reward do you want in heaven? But some of you are like, I don't like that answer. And I, I understand you don't like that answer, but think about it. It makes sense. All right, let me give you an analogy. This is actually a really bad analogy, so just try to go with me on this. But I want you to imagine that I had a time machine in the back. Okay, so I have a DeLorean, my flux capacitor, in the back. About three of you like that. Okay, so that's good. And so I had that in the back. And let's say that I was like, we're going to get in my time machine. We're going to go back to 1980 or whenever it was that Apple computer stocks were on the or penny to the dollar or whatever, right? Let's go back to that time. So we get back in the car. We go back in time. And we end up going there. And we go to, we go to the stock market and that kind of thing. And, I, and I, I'm like, okay, we need to invest in Apple products because Apple computers are going to go on and make the iPhone and the iPod and the Apple Watch and all these computers. It's going to be a massive hit. We're all going to get just filthy rich off of this. And you asked me, okay, how much should I invest? My answer you'd be, well, how much return do you want? Well, should I give 10%? Well, I don't know. What, what kind of return do you want? Should you give 20%? I don't know. How much return do you want? See, see, the Bible gives us certainty on this investment. When we make investments in this life, we are not certain where it lands. We are on this one. Jesus promised it, and he said, listen, this is why in this passage, the Apostle Paul says, whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. You want a little? Sow a little. He says, whoever sows generously, reaps generously. And And so how generous should you be? Well, it depends, because there's eternity to be in mind. So again, the gospel is what motivates it. Enjoyment, God wants us to enjoy things. Equality, that's God's kind of picture. Wisdom, God wants us to be wise with our money. He wants us to think with eternity in mind. Here's the last one, the last one. Money is a matter of faith. Money is a matter of faith. And it always is. Jesus understands, the reason Jesus talks about money so much is because Jesus knows when you're talking about money, you're almost never talking about money. Money is the way that you understand what you worship and what you put your faith in. If you look at 2 Corinthians again, verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 3 to 5, Paul says, I testify, this is awesome, by the way, he's talking about the Macedonian church, a group of people who are dirt poor. I love what he says, look at this. He says, I testify that they, the Macedonian church, this dirt poor church, he says, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. Look at this. He's like, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of the Lord's people. Do you see that? They were like, please let us give. And the, the apostles were like, you guys are getting crazy. And they're like, please. And so look what he says. He says, they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves at all, uh, first of all to the Lord, and then they gave, us, gave themselves to us also. I want you to notice what it says. It says the reason they were able to give the way they did is because they gave themselves first to the Lord. And that, that's the truth. Generosity is always a matter of what you worship. It's a matter of faith. I think this is why Jesus said, if you want to know where your treasure is, or you want to know uh, where your heart is, you look at your treasure. Your treasure is where your heart is. 
So the Bible, the Bible tells us that if you, if you want to know what you truly put your faith in, if you want to know what it is that you truly worship, there is a fast-tracked way to identify that, and it is to follow your money, your wealth and your possessions, because where those things go, it's going to show you where your heart is. I had to get an oil change this week, and uh, when I was at the oil change place, my check engine light's been coming on. And so um, in order for that, you guys know that if you have a check engine light, it could be a number of different things. There, that, that check engine light is attached to so many different sensors throughout your vehicle. And so when, when I was there, what they did was they took a little scan gun. You guys know what I'm talking about? They have a little scanner that's by the, by the uh, windshield, and they just scanned it. And what that did was it was able to diagnose for us exactly where the, where the problem is, exactly what was going on under the hood. And, and what I want to say is, is, is this, is that the Bible says that our money is a lot like that, that barcode. If you want to know what's going on under the hood of your heart and you want to know, you want to diagnose what it is that you're putting your faith and your hope and your trust in, you just look at your money and it's going to tell you that. Jesus talked about this so much because he understood this. He knew how to get right to people's hearts. And the reason there's resistance attached to this is because you're dealing with matters of faith, not just matters of money. I remember when I first, uh, when I first heard a conversation on the topic of financial generosity in the Bible, I was 19 years old. I was a Christian for two years. I had never heard the conversation before. And I, I was sitting under the teaching of a man I respect a whole lot, a mentor of mine, who was talking about this idea of the biblical perspective of generosity. And I remember the whole conversation, there was two things that were happening. One was I felt really uncomfortable. Because up to that point, I had been, I was, I had been a, I, not a generous person. I was the kind of person that would give a couple bucks in the plate every once in a while. But it was always a leftover. It was always like, God, this is what's left over. There it is. And that's probably fine. But I, I had never purposefully given myself to the concept of biblical generosity. Never had done it. And I remember this guy was teaching. And the first thing I felt was I felt really uncomfortable. And the second thing I felt was I felt scared. I felt a whole bunch of fear. Because I, I knew he was right. But I started to think about it. And I thought, man, if I start giving, if I start giving first to God as a priority, if I start giving my income before I give to others, if I start doing that in a, in a concentrated, strategic way, I felt scared. I thought, man, what if I can't, make, what if I can't pay my bills? What, what, if I, what if something goes wrong? What if, and all these what ifs came in my mind. And I realized what was happening. I realized what was going on was that my faith was being tested. Bill Hybels puts it this way. He says, biblical generosity is a faith check and it is a gut check and it is a heart check. It's one, it is one thing for us to say, I have faith in God. That's a whole other story when you've got to put your money on the table. Totally different thing. And, and I, I've learned that that fear that I felt that day is actually a really good thing because that fear is the feeling of idolatry in my heart slowly dying. Every time we give, it cuts, it cuts loose the cords of idolatry that secretly wrap their way around my heart. The allegiances of my heart, the, the, the places where I put my hope and my faith are revealed in this category. And so it's an issue of faith. All right, so the matrix. Gospel motivates it. God wants us to enjoy it. Quality is the goal. We should have wisdom. We should think with eternity in mind. And we should recognize that it's a matter of faith. And all of those things the Bible says are equally true. You can't take any one of those at the exclusion of others and they need to be held in a reverent tension. All right, let me end with this. I just wanna say two things and then we're finished. I want to talk just real quick to the Medina East Campus family, those of you who regularly attend here to Medina, and then I just want to talk to everyone in the room. Okay, so first, for the Medina East Campus family, as we talk about moving to Saturday evening services, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, there is a financial consideration that is attached to that. That's no surprise to anybody, okay? 
Uh, we had talked about a couple weeks ago that our attendance growth that we've experienced over the past three years since we've started has grown over two and a half times. Uh, effectively, we have basically tripled as a campus since we started. We talked about how our ministries have outpaced us. They have grown exponentially to a place where Power Kids alone has tripled since we began. And we said that as attendance has grown, as our ministries are growing, that our financial situation has remained relatively stagnant, that we have not grown into where we need to be. We said that there's a minority, there is a select minority of people who are carrying the financial privilege of this campus. And so we said there is room for us to grow in this area as a church, in this, in this area of generosity. Uh, one of the things you guys have in your program is a chart that looks like this. We said that in order for us to move to Saturday services in a healthy way, not in an extravagant way, in a healthy way, in order for us to keep up with, with the demands of our increasing ministries that we've experienced from this past year, we are, we are aiming at a $25,000 per month increase of giving. And as we looked at our giving analysis, we said that sounds like a big number, but it's actually extremely reasonable uh, for the size of our campus and those type of things. Okay, so what we challenge the people who are part of the Medina East Campus family, as we said, this is a family, kind of a family conversation. So if you're a guest, I apologize, it's probably a little awkward, but it's a family conversation. So we said we need to be aware of where we are and we've given everyone a commitment card. And we said we wanted to ask you as a family or as an individual with God to pray about what your generous, what, what, it look, what generosity looks like for you in this area, all right? So, so here's, here's what I would challenge you to do if you're part of the Medina East Campus family. If you're processing through all of this right now, if you're still trying to figure out with your family those commitment cards, you're trying to figure out this financial piece of it, how do you process through that? And here's what I would say. Here is how you process through that, all right? Take these principles and just process through them. The, motivated by the gospel, not, not guilt, not compulsion, not any, if, if, if it's for you, you're like, well, now I just feel guilty, like I should give. That's the wrong motivation. It's not, I would tell you that don't give. I, I would be lying to you biblically if I said that that was a good way to give. It's not. Process through these different things and then determine in your heart what generosity looks like for you as it relates to this. Now, for everyone else, for those of you who are not part of the Medina East Campus, and if you're a guest, wow, you really came on a great Sunday, didn't you? And uh, let me just say this, though. If, if someone came up today and wrote a $2 billion check to Grace Church, which thank you, by the way, I appreciate that. But uh, if, if, if that really did happen, and you said, here's all the money that you'll need for the rest of the existence of the campus, now we can stop talking about money. We would never stop talking about money. And the reason is because our Lord and Savior talked about this more than anything because he understands you're talking about more than just money, you're talking about all this stuff. And, and so listen, um, if you're a person that's like this whole conversation, you've been skeptical, you've been like, I don't trust you, I don't know if I like this church, this place feels weird to me because of that. If that's the case, then listen, please, we said this the first week and I really mean this, don't give here, don't. I t I've explained to you what the biblical motivations to give are and if those are not in your heart, then don't, don't. I'd be doing you no favor and it would not be to your health to tell you to do that. But I would say this, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, even if you don't trust this ministry or you don't agree with this ministry, give somewhere, give somewhere. We love you too much to, 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 see, to, to miss this aspect of your spiritual health. It is that, that important. So I'd encourage you to do that. One of the things I would say too is if you're looking for more resources on this topic, um, I've actually included on the back of your program a QR code 
to a podcast that I listened to when I was preparing for today's message. I actually didn't use any of the content from that podcast, but I will just tell you, in my opinion, it was the greatest conversation I have ever heard on this topic. Uh, it's two Harvard guys that did a deep analysis on biblical generosity, and the results astounded them. And I would encourage you to check it out. It was really, really powerful. So if you're looking for more information, you can check that out, and I'd encourage you to do that. Bottom line, I'll end with this. The Apostle Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, Now he who supplies seed of, to the sower and bread for food will also supply increase your store of seed, and he will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Now listen to verse 11. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through, through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The first week we said we are blessed to bless. The second week we said we are rescued to rescue. This week I want you to hear me say this. We have been given to give. We've been given to give. One of the reasons we move forward is because of what we believe about generosity. Let's pray. Well, God, I just want to say thank you so much for your word to us this morning. God, thank, this, thank you that you're a giver. God, you're a giver. God, you get you, like the Bible says, you, you emptied yourself for the sake of our blessedness. Jesus, we were in an impoverished situation. Our sin had left us separated from you. And God, we had no ability on our own to work ourselves to your standard of holiness. And yet, Christ, with all of his riches, with all of his luxuries, deliberately laid those things aside and made himself poor, dying a, a criminal's death for our sake that we might gain riches. God, that, 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 if that's real, if that's true, that ought to do something. And so, Father, I pray that you would just allow the gospel to work itself into our hearts. And for those of us who have trusted in that message, I pray, Jesus, that it would, that it would uh, just digest itself down deep into our soul. And Father, as we think about navigating through the tension of these, of these different principles that kind of make up this matrix, it, it requires wisdom. It just does. It looks different from one person to the next. There is, there is not a pat answer to this. It's something we've got to work out between you and between us and our hearts. We've got to be honest. It takes a lot of honesty. It takes a lot of humility. But Father, I pray this would be an area that you would help us to excel in, help us to grow in this area, God, the area of generosity. So Father, I pray that, uh, that you would just... Um, Use your words to us today. Use your word. I pray that it would uh, that uh, that whatever is from you would st would just stick in our hearts and our minds. Whatever's not would be forgotten immediately. And that we just say thank you for your grace to us this morning in Jesus' name.